This podcast is part of the You Haven't Heard This Productions and Publications Network. For more great shows and blogs and vlogs, please visit www.yhhtmpc.com. Uh, hi Arnold, thank you for joining me and spending this uh, time just to talk about The Running Man. Uh, I've listened to the fil- uh, listened to the audiobook and watched the film and after watching it and listening to it, this could be taken as a, uh, a kind of anarchistic... Uh, message against uh, the networks and things like that is that is that the way this is meant to be the running man was not really done for for that purpose you know to, to do anything against network um or make fun of them or whatever although a lot of it is is uh, today already reality that you see in in in, in the film uh, that whole competition for ratings and all that uh, but uh, the, the, it's just an idea that you say, okay, let's assume this is happening. Let's assume there's an economic disaster in a future time, let's say 2013 or 19 or whenever it happened. And uh, the networks are competing against each other for ratings. The government is involved and they are actually uh, paying the networks uh, in order to keep the people away from the streets, from rioting and keep them glued to the TV set. And everyone is hooked together, government, network, and dictatorship, and economic disaster. And now what will happen with a game show like The Running Man, which is the most popular show in order to create the highest rating? And so that's really what, what the purpose of this is. And then with that vehicle, entertain people, rather than making a fun at the network or anything like that. That little snippet of an interview you just heard there between myself and Arnold Schwarzenegger, which was definitely real, definitely, definitely was in no way fake, so you don't need to check it out or have a look to find out. It definitely happened. And if you don't believe me, that probably just means you don't like children and want all puppies to die. It was me talking with him about the film The Running Man, which is the subject matter of today's podcast. And welcome to the Adapted to Screen podcast. This is a podcast where we take a book and we compare it with its on-screen counterpart. With me to talk all about The Running Man by Richard Bachman, <coughs> Stephen King, is Philip McCulloch. How are you, Phil? You good? Richie, hello to you. I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And also joining us, we have Paul Carenza. Hi, Paul. You good? I'm all right, thank you. Yes, indeed. Looking forward to getting into this film slash book slash whatever it might be. Awesome. And for our listeners who might not know you, do you want to just tell us a little bit about who you are? Uh, yes, indeed. I'm a comedian. Uh, I'm a writer. I write for, for some TV sitcoms like Not Going Out and Miranda and some uh, entertainment shows as well. I've done some other things uh, there. And then what with the old pandemic nonsense um, and the stand-up went, I had to get another job as well as a lecturer in screenwriting at Winchester University, which included the module I was lecturing in last year, screenwriting as adaptation. So in theory, Ooh. I've taught on adaptation for about 10 weeks last year, and I'll be doing it again this autumn, in fact. So um, maybe I'll be directing my students to this fine podcast, and they can learn more than I can teach them. The perfect guest. Well, when pe- when you tell people that you're a comedian, have you ever had anybody say, oh, were you the one that's Ricky Gervais's mate? Sometimes. I've had that. I have had that. And in fact, one of my first quotes I ever had on my poster was from Ricky Gervais. So um, uh, when I, 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 I gigged with him for his third ever gig uh, and he was there. He was there looking at... He'd just done The Office at the time, actually. And he, um, he, he, he was asking the other... I was an open spot at the time and he was asking us for advice because I'd done like 
50 gigs and he'd done three. And he'd say, how do, how do we do stand-up then? I was like, well, you've done The Office, mate. I think you'll be all right. You know? <laughs> and, it, and it turns out that advice put him in good stead. Look at him now. There you are. What was the quote, Paul? Uh, it was uh, it was bleeping funny. Bleep, I'm going to say bleeping in case we don't. This makes it a clean well, podcast. That's what we but, like. Uh, you, you, you must swear. You I must swear. swear. <laughs> is that right? Is that the rule? Every it's single essential. sentence. Every single. Well, we, we might have to as the film. Uh, as we talk about the film, depends on Indeed. our take on it. You started off and you said, "I'm a comedian." Now, mm-hmm. as a comedian, most of your stuff is written and it's prepared. Do you find it when you're doing something like this? Do you worry that people might watch it and think? Well, I thought he was a fucking comedian, and you just, because this is this is pretty much the normal side of you, isn't it? Because when you say you're a comedian, people expect you to be funny twenty four seven. It's true, and it's it's a problem actually. I'm finding more and more. I'm I'm drift. I think a lot of comedians do this. They sort of I've been doing about twenty just over twenty years now as a stand up, and my interests are certainly in other areas. But my major project last three or four years has been on the history of the, of the BBC and the history of broadcasting, and I do a podcast about it called the British Broadcasting Century plug. And I'm writing a book about it, and I do a stage show recreating the very first BBC broadcast. So, and I'm a bit of an anorak for that stuff, but it's it's entertaining, hopefully, but not laugh out loud funny all the time. So um, I, I like to think the stand up and the comedy background puts you in good stead for communicating something in a hopefully entertaining way, but also it's not laugh a minute. And I think people sometimes can turn up to things going, you know, I wrote a book on the history of Christmas a few years ago. And I had people on Amazon going, well, I expected a joke book. It was, you know, I was going, well, it's, it's, a, it's meant to be a, a light uh, coffee table history book with a few light bits in it, but it's not a joke book, you know. So, um, but they see comedian, they expect ha ha ha. But here I we see are. how modest you were earlier, Paul. So really what you're saying, you're a, you're, a, you're a comedian, TV writer, radio presenter, author, lecturer, stage show writer as well. So there's at least six things you've got going on in the fire. The thing is, it, yeah, but it sounds good, but actually it's because I do all of them because not one of them adds up to one salary. So <laughs> you've got to do 12. It's the freelance jungle. You've got to do 12 jobs to make ends meet, you know. So if one of them breaks through, then we'll just do that. But for now, I enjoy a bit of everything. It's a, re- a renaissance performer, you know. It's a bit of uh, the portfolio career. That's the fancy way of saying... Oh, I like that portfolio career. Excellent. You can have that. It's like saying that I'm Jack of all trades, but master of none. It's exactly that. It's exactly that, yeah. <laughs> How long has your podcast been going for then, Paul? Uh, I've been going for about... Actually, I know where it started because it was it was just as the pandemic kicked off pretty much because that's when the, the stand-up gig sort of went for a while. Um, and really it came out because I could see coming up June 2020, June 15th, 2020, was the 100th anniversary of what was really the first proper broadcast. It was like two years before the BBC... Dame Nelly Melba, live from Chelmsford, being broadcast across Europe as a test, really, to see if people would ever listen to the radio. And I could see it coming up in the diary, and I thought, I'm looking... I'm a bit of a a nerd for that stuff. I thought, I'm looking forward to this being celebrated on TV or radio or in magazines. And I could... It got closer. I thought, no one's... No one knows about this stuff. There's no (laughs) podcast about old radio. There's no podcast about the story behind these things. And I found these lovely old clips and archive material and experts and stuff and I thought you know basically I wanted to listen to a podcast about it and I couldn't find one so I made one you know that's often what how podcasting starts I think isn't it you, you think of an idea you think oh I'd, I'd like to listen to that and you can't find it so uh... true but I think 90% of uh, podcasts are just movie podcasts occasionally you'll get a niche podcast like yours well I, I think at least movie podcasts are about a thing you know whereas what bothers me is the ones of the last couple of years which is sort of just famous people talking to their mates because they're a bit bored and put it out and know they'll get 10,000 
you know listeners within a day you know yeah and they get lots and lots of views and listens more than everybody else that's been doing it for seven or eight years <laughs> it's really I'm fucking not, annoying I, I listened to one the other day I won't say who it was but a couple of famous people having a chat and you think okay if it is just that and it's a bit of fun I almost didn't mind it until I listened in and, and suddenly heard just plug after plug after sponsored plug sponsored ad hey you know get this skin cream go on this whole and it's just like another instagram you know hashtag ad kind of thing and it really felt a little bit like you're just using podcastery for your own nefarious bored wanting money purposes and that's not what it's all about it's fucking disgusting it ruins it for independent podcasters like ourselves Too right have a word <laughs> right then richie shall we begin yes we shall do you want to Start with the author's bump. Author's bump. So, The Running Man was written by a man called Richard Bachman, who we all know as Stephen King. Um, So I won't go through his back catalogue, but uh, just something quite interesting. In the late 1970s and early 80s, King published a handful of short novels, Rage, The Long Walk, Roadwork, The Running Man and Thin Act under the pseudonym of Richard Bachman. The idea was to test whether he could replicate his success again to allay his fears that his popularity was an accident. An alternate explanation was that publishing standards at the time only allowed a single book a year. He picked up the name from the hard rock band Bachman Turner Overdrive, of which he is a fan. Never heard of them. Oh, yeah, I have. I think they've got like one very, very popular song. Yeah, it's the, uh, which I knew from Harry Enfield and Smashy and Nicey, really. You know, let's rock, and then it's... You ain't seen nothing yet. That's it. Oh, oh, is it there? Mm. How about that? All of our American friends haven't got a fucking clue what you're on about. They wouldn't have a clue, <laughs> and it's got the stutter in it, only because they were taking the mick out of the uh, studio engineer when recording it. Baby, you just ain't seen nothing yet. So uh, oh. that was a bit of a mm. You do sound very Smashy and Nicey then, Paul. Not off. I've got the microphone to suit as well. You know, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Hello, pop pickers. Yeah. Right. So this is a part of the podcast room, Richie. I ask you, when did you first come across the Running Man? I mean, cool. We've we've I've known about the Running Man since a year, little boy. But um, I've never I've never watched it. It never just never watched. It. I didn't know it was a book until obviously you told me it was a book. So recently, book when I was probably about ten, when I found out about the film, I just never, yeah. And to be honest, after watching it, I haven't really missed out. <laughs> uh, Paul, same question to you. Uh, I can't remember what age. I must have been uh, a young teenager, probably, uh, when I first was aware of The Running Man as a film. And I remember seeing. I, I must have. I think as people did back then, see it in bits. You know, it was on ITV or something, and you you walk in halfway through. There's a whole load of films from that era that I just saw the second half, and I've never seen the the beginning of. You know, whereas nowadays I think that probably happens less with streaming services and catch up and things. But people of my generation, you know, I think you get used to just watching, you know, the last hour of a film or something. And uh, so it's only in the last probably I don't know maybe ten years ago I saw the full film and read the book. That's the genius of plus one isn't it? Mm. <laughs> you come and you've missed the first 40 minutes. Put it on ITV plus one. <laughs> we can watch yeah. it from the start. I think, yeah, I think pretty similar for me. Early teens, maybe. I think I always got, uh, I always got Total Recall and The Running Man mixed up as well because I thought they were quite similar and the Arnie film seemed to be on quite a lot. Uh, then so you get Predator, Commando, Running Man, Total Recall. You'd get all those in short bursts. And I knew about the book for 
I suppose for a long time, just never read it until uh, we decided to do this podcast, really. Um, so, Richard, do you want to tell us what the... Oh, Paul, do you want to tell us what the plot of the book is about? Well, yeah, okay. So the, these are relatively different uh, storylines, story but but with a, a, an overall thread, I suppose. But the book, then, is... Uh, is set in oddly the book is set in in the current future whereas the film is set in the current past just about so the book is set in 2025 it's a dystopian uh, fiction it's not a long book either it's sort of a novella i suppose and or not long for stephen king book anyway and in this in both the the stories you've got ben richards Um, in the book then he's got a wife and he's got a daughter who's very ill daughter needs uh, medicine and his wife is on the streets and they're just trying to earn money however possible Um, he is then uh, blacklisted from his job and there is in the meantime there is this tv show well there are various tv shows in this dystopian future which are all basically sort of violent uh, reality shows but this is of course written in an era before reality shows were a thing so it's quite prescient in a way and um, in the in the book, then you've got this character called uh, Dan Killian, who is sort of the boss of the show. In the film, there's also a, a, a Killian, um, a character called Killian, a uh, Damon Killian, I think they change it to, who's also the host of the show in the film. But in the book, they've got a different TV show host. And yep, the Ben Richards character then has to go on the run on this TV show called The Running Man. And uh, he's essentially hunted down for fun, for entertainment value on TV. So if you've seen Channel 4's Hunted, it's basically the same plot as that, except when caught, they don't get tapped on the shoulder and told your time on the run is over, uh, you are killed. But um, it, for every hour you last on the run, you get a hundred hundred dollars, hundred new dollars. New dollars. New dollars, which of course are different and probably worthless. But um, And if you complete the entire thing, 30 days, you get a billion dollars, um, which I think probably for the early 80s was... Um, it's very rep. Normally, you find back then, you know, they say you can win a million pounds or a million dollars, but they went for straight for the billion. I think, which always goes to show, this is such an unreachable amount of money. Even if you did that nowadays, it would still seem out of reach and massive. But I think back then, even the concept of a billion has changed over the last sort of 30, 40 years. So, an unreachable, unimaginable amount of wealth would be yours if you can last 30 days. Uh, but he just wants to earn money for his family, for his poorly daughter, and he, he goes on the run, um, essentially. So, um, that's. It's a very good overview there, Paul. Thank you very much. Uh, just quickly to look at the cast of the of the film, which the book is adapted from, or the film is adapted from. Of course, Ben Richards is, ben Richards is played by uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. We have Maria Conchita Alonso, uh, who people may know better from Predator 2. You've got Yafet Koto, who plays Lachlan. Uh, Jim Brown, who plays Fireball. Uh, you've got Erlen van Lith, who plays Dynamo, Jesse Ventura, as well, who plays Captain Freedom. We also have Professor Turu Tanaka, Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac. Uh, <laughs> I knew you'd do that. And of course, we have uh, Richard Dawson as, da- as Damien Killian. Uh, Richard Dawson, for those maybe British people who don't know, uh, was a game show host in America. I suppose the American Dale Winton, but you wouldn't you wouldn't have guessed that really. I suppose because he played that character very very well indeed. And uh, yeah, so uh, with with Paul's uh, overview of the plot, did you initially like the book? Is that a yes or no from you? Um, yes, 
And no, when I started the book, the first chapter or so, well, there weren't really chapters, there were min- minus, hundred, yes, minus, was a and counting. Yes, it was, it was a, a countdown. countdown, which was an unusual way of doing it. The, um, Chapters, but it was me. good. It, it didn't really annoy. I don't, I don't understand why they did it. I don't. It no, made no sense. They didn't explain it. They didn't explain it. But even so, when it started, the first couple of um, chapters, nothing was making any sense until the, the plot really started to kick in. And I thought this. I, I, I really wasn't enjoying it. I thought I'm not going to enjoy this book. I'm going to hate this. I don't know why he's chose this. But then when the plot started to kick in. Then I started to get into it, but it started very slow. Started very weird for me. Well, it's probably my favourite, and I can, if I say subgenre, does that make me like an idiot? But um, like the human hunting films are like they're they're like some of my favourite. If you look at maybe um, the lower budget, like Avenging Force or Death Ring or Deadly Prey, Bet Your Life. Uh, or even the original, which is the most dangerous game. You've got Predator, Running Man. Uh, and there's one that's just come out. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's either on Prime or Netflix. Uh, it's called Most Dangerous Game with Chris Hemsworth and Christoph Waltz, which actually is very similar to the book in concept, whereas I think in that film, he's told he's ill. And he can win X amount of money per hour if he stays alive. But he's confined to the city. He's not allowed to leave the city. So it was um, it was uh, very similar to the book, The Running Man, rather than uh, rather the film. But I've always liked these kind of films because it adds a bit of tension. I thought there was the one thing that I thought there was there was there was tension in places in the book. Look, Paul, the question I wanted to ask is if someone come to you with the book of The Running Man and said, we've got the rights to make it a film, how how do you go about adapting something? Well, you know, this has they are talking about readapting it. Edgar Wright, in fact, has the, uh, yeah, that's in his hands. Which would be interesting. You know, interesting choice. Very, you know, visually interesting filmmaker and, and, and use of comedy as well uh, and loves a bit of, uh, I guess... Um, dystopian or, or where's this sci-fi likely I suppose is fair to say with Edgar Wright you know um, but in terms of adapting it though yeah I suppose you get the book and for me I would say you know you break it down um, you look at the story you look at the aspects that you particularly warm to and, and, and think tell a good story look at the character particularly I think the character differs quite a lot I think the thing is the, the, the overall headline for me is that this could have you know there are lots of Stephen King films that have been adapted but as soon as you cast Arnie generally speaking it becomes an Arnie film and this yes. one is almost the Arniest of Arnie films in many ways it's full of the catchphrases the zingers and it's you know in fact um, both Arnie and Stephen King have gone on the record saying that they don't like the film version um, both of them didn't really uh, go for it in the end I think they just thought it, it went away that it just it could have been deeper it could have gone been more filmic really rather than a glorified TV show but I think um, I, I, I did enjoy the book I think I I, like, I enjoyed them both differently um, I think but I think that what I would love to have kept more from the book was the scope and the scale of it and get on the run a bit more because mm-hmm. for something called The Running Man I find it odd they, 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 yes there is running involved but it's generally around either an arena or a sort of again it's also a bit confusing I think I find that wasn't quite sure what the parameters were in the film of are we in a city are we in the arena do we break out the arena but it's sort of almost like a city compound whereas in the book he goes to Boston and he goes up New York State and he goes to Maine and he could even they could even I think with the book 
go go you know, he's be criticizing Stephen King but I'd love to see it go wider you know and use the country um, and to go beyond into different media um, I, I love those as you said those sort of um, on the run kind of movies there's a film called The Hunt uh, with yes super, brilliant no, Hilary Swank isn't it Hilary Swank yes that's really ago. good actually it's a really good concept of of the old like normally it's five rich people who just set people off in the woods but mm. that's a really really good concept yeah I enjoyed mm. that yeah and, and what I found interesting about that one no, no particular spoilers but is the fact that rather than following a character and going like the Hunger Games you know Jennifer Lawrence is going to last all three films with The Hunt there's a sense you just ally, ally yourself with someone and suddenly you switch to someone else and people are killed off at random times and there's a, more of a sense of, of da- proper danger, I think, with, with, with him like that. Um, but I love things like... Um, there's an American game show called The Amazing Race, which takes like 10, 15 couples. It's not like season 30 now or something like that. It's been going for ages. And it will start off in a location, Grand Canyon or somewhere like that, and it is a race all around the world uh, via different pit stops and challenges and there's nothing to stop now people going global with these ideas and so the film feels feels quite constrained it feels like it's sort of an arena or a part of a city the book is a bit wider but still sticks to the american northeast it could be a more of a national kind of sense it could even be global so i would be curious to see what edgar wright does with it yes and as um, as you outlined in the plot there ben richards in the book decides that he's well he he decides he's going to go on one of these game shows. One of the game shows is something like Run for Cash, where people run on a treadmill and they're asked questions and they're given money at certain periods of time, basically until they drop dead. And with Ben's ill daughter, who's about two years old, he just decides he's going to go. And there's this long part of the book where he's in the queue at this massive games HQ and all the people are treated like dirt and the police are, you know, throwing people out of the building if they're probably not healthy either not healthy enough or too ill to participate and he goes through a long not interview process but you know his his fitness is assessed his psychology is is assessed his intelligence is assessed in all of these certain aspects and I think um, you kind of get the idea that Ben's very hard hard worn but he can also be quite mean and spiteful at times as well. And for a hero, I mean, I kind of kind of pictured him as a Jack Reacher type of person, um, but I found it hard to like the character sometimes because like, he like he seemed to be mean when he didn't need to be mean. And I think a lot of his problems are really his own. Like for instance, his stubbornness at work, or you know, rather than maybe say for instance, just getting on with your life, he caused problems for himself, and that's why he's in this in this position but I think this kind of like this kind of little bit even though it was long in the book this could have been a three or four minute bit in a film if you know what I mean like rather than the in the in the film when he refused to kill all the people that that just didn't make much Mm. sense to me it's like oh I'm not going to kill these people right we're going to say you did and put you in jail yeah for what for what reason yeah that bit doesn't make very much sense where this bit of the book that would be maybe even more ideal because Arnie's doing it for his family and this kind of bit would be quite good I think well also I think you know I, I do wonder I know Edgar Wright's obviously doing maybe doing this film potentially it's early days yet I suppose but it makes me think is this really better done as a Netflix you know limited series or even an ongoing series because there are films that are doing this you know that um what was that smash hit Netflix thing last year uh, the uh South Korean game show thing where they are um, oh Squid Game 
Squid Game, exactly. You know, yeah. all of those sorts of things. This this is the time of the Running Man, really. The Running Man was, mm-hmm. was way ahead of the curve on these things, and. Um, and not only that, but I, I, I think, yeah, there's a, a sense it's sort of distracting entertainment fun and, you know, these sort of horror thriller things, but also very prescient in terms of, you know, are we now in that sort of dystopia thing? Reality TV is now bigger than ever. They're looking for more and more extreme ways of pushing it. Even in the film as well of The Running Man, you've actually got this sort of deep fake technology where they can take someone's yes. face and digitally put it on someone else's to show a thing on TV that people then believe is the truth. So... You know, it was way ahead of its time in terms of some of those things. So actually, it does have a bit of a, a point to make, arguably, that it's only grown in time, maybe. There was a, there was a show on, it's got to be about 10 years ago now, is it like Run for Cash, where like you had a bag of cash and then they released a dog. Oh, Release the Hounds, this was. Yeah, yeah Release the Hounds, yeah, there you yeah. go, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, also, it reminds me of back in the 90, early 90s, even late 80s, the Japanese game show Endurance that I only ever saw on Tarrant on TV, yes. on ITV, and they'd always cut to Endurance, and it was these people, I think, I remember, I distinctly have this memory of the, the grand final of Endurance was three of these poor contestants on the Japanese game show in the desert in glass boxes, and it was like, how long can you last in the glass box with no water and the sun burning down on you, and you will get hotter and hotter, and also in the Running Man uh, book, they have a game show called How Hot Can You Take It, you know, and... That you know, you just that was written in what the early eighties uh, by Stephen King, Richard Bachman. But cut forward only probably about five six years, and you know this this Japanese game show Endurance was using that basically for a one of the earliest reality shows. Craziness. Um, so yeah, so well, uh, picking back up with the book. So so Ben gets accepted along with everyone else, but he's chosen for the Running Man, and this is where we meet Killian, who's not the host of the show, but he's. He's the executive, the TV executive, and and again, this is this is the role reversal. Killian doesn't seem to be that bad of a person. I mean, okay, he's the executive of a, of a TV company that like to kill people for entertainment. But um, as you said, there he's. Oh, sorry, uh, Phil. I think that's the, the definition of a bad person. <laughs> no, yeah, but like, if you just hear me out, um, and, like, you know, you know, the rules are set out. You earn this much if you survive this this long. But it actually gives him a little advance, doesn't he, to send money back to get the medicine for his children. And I think that's probably done to kind of keep him focused on the job. Uh, but the one the one thing that I didn't get is that like, when they talked about the hunters who come and get you, there were no hunters. It was just the police. And then it kind of seemed a bit odd to me. If he wouldn't have set fire to the hotel, would the police have got involved? And would we have seen any hunters? It just seemed that the police were chasing him through, throughout the whole of the the program, uh, the whole of the book, sorry. Yeah, what I think, what I quite like about the book is that, uh, there, I know you can see that as a bad point, the fact there aren't really hunters as such. I think they, they describe them as hunters, whereas the film is uh, stalkers. But that's one massive difference, I think, is that in the book, there's maybe a... S- a slightly bigger sense of who can you trust and he's declared as an enemy of the state so anybody can turn him in um whereas in the film the everyday folk are really just the audience watching in a big tv studio mostly full of old people um who are quite sweary it turns out in the film um <laughs> and that's often quite fun just seeing old people swearing but um but in the in the film it's essentially gladiators uh, who are the ones out to hunt him down and then it's just like sub-zero or you know fireball or whatever it might be and the grand entrance and they use their weapon which arnie then turns against them whereas in the book 
it's a little subtler a bit more subtext a bit more long slow burning tension of the fact who do you trust you wear a disguise you get to this checkpoint you'll get you get to that thing the fact also the fact he's got he has to send back every day to video cassettes of where he is and what he's doing then the, the way he gets around that by using different postmarks and stuff like that so it's a slightly bigger sense of being tracked down but who do you trust and and in that sense you can go through i mean i i I always watch the channel 4 show hunted i'm a fan of that show and some of the episodes the hunters are nowhere near any of the contestants but you have that thing of who do you trust and they're staying with a stranger and then the next door neighbor makes a phone call and turns them in so that sort of sense i used to like hunted but i've got to say there's i've got i've got serious issues with that program like First of all, they go on the run and that's fine. But it's quite easy to find two people who have got two camera crews next to them. So you've got these two people on the that's run true. with two blokes with massive cameras. They're going, oh, we're going to hide in the woods. And what what these camera people can't be tracked or found. And it's like, they find them quite easily. And it's like, how are you actually finding these people in the middle of the Lake District? It's it's um, Sometimes it's a little bit conceited, I think. I haven't watched this, what you're talking about. I've, I, it interests me. I've wanted to. I just never got round to it. But what, see, what you're telling me is the person who's on the run isn't on his own. He's got a camera crew with him. Well, how else are you going to know what they're doing? Well, fuck me. <laughs> no wonder he gets caught. <laughs> Fucking hell. I mean, you give me a camera like in the book because he's got his own camera and whatever. Easy. It, I, I say it's easy. That that made it a little bit more difficult because you had to post the uh, the tapes, didn't they? That mm, made yeah. things a bit more difficult because, you know, they could chase the chase where the he is. And, and stuff. That, yeah. that made... If, if, if I've just got to go on the run and fuck off for a couple of weeks, easy. I could do that now. I could do that in this town. They'd never find me. No, I... Actually, you're wrong there. You're wrong there because what no, they I'm do. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. No, well, definitely. Well, what easy. they did. What what they did in the um, in one season, they let everyone out in Birmingham Town Centre, and so they've got all the CCTV and they watch where they run. And like some people, you wouldn't like, go to a big city, would you? Yes, well, you would because that's where they let you out, right? So they oh, let you out. so okay, so that's where you've got to stay in the city. No, listen. So what they do, they've got all the people who are who are contesting the contestants. They let them out of a van in the middle of say Birmingham City Centre. And so, obviously, they've, they've all got a bank card with, say, £200. So what some of them do is draw the money out straight away so they can't be tracked on where they're drawing the money out. Some people, like, hitched lifts or whatever, and then, obviously, AMPR cameras pick them up and they can track them up the motorway and see where they're going. One bloke ran to the canal, got on push bike, and just drove down the canal, and they couldn't track him and that kind of thing. So that's how, that's how the concept... And then they've got to stay on the run for 30 days, and then at the end of the 30 days, they're given a, a pick-up point and the hunters have, one, got to find them in the meantime, but also work out where the end point is before they get all the money and escape. The ones who do well on that show are the ones who hit the countryside and go camping and go off-grid, off so to speak. And, yeah, that's, uh, what I I do. Series, that's what I'd do. Series one of it, there was a guy who literally went up Ben Nevis and just sat there for about half a day with some sandwiches and thought, look, I'm on, I'll am i see them coming. I'm on, I'm on top of the world here, you know. And uh, eventually he just thought, I bet I'm a bit bored. I better come down. And that was when he was caught, I think, you know, because they... Um, there's only one route out of Ben Nevis you know the new is up there somewhere I tell you the the bit that I remember that the reason why I stopped watching 
was there was because um, because what they'll do, Richie, for instance, let's say if you're on the run, they'll come round to, to your wife's, or they'll come round to yours, and they'll talk to your wife, and they'll go, uh, you know, like we want his phone, we want his laptop, because we want to see who he's been talking to, or if you've been booking caravans, this, that, the other. And there was this one episode where the the partner was a police officer, and they're talking to her, and she's giving it the police bluster, and then she goes out, and then they quote unquote break into her house. They walk round the back, open a back door while she's not there, and take stuff. I'm like, hang on, that's not how you do it. This is really, as if as if that's allowed. that's made up as well. They haven't actually <laughs> yeah. done that. That's not allowed. That, no, yeah. of course. And I thought that that's what that's what's making the series a little bit silly now. I remember the people who won this actually one season. They went and hid in a church somewhere in Scotland, and then phoned and then he phoned his wife and went, "Well, we're in a church in Scotland." And they obviously tracked the the call to that. Just like, what are you doing? You don't phone anyone. Yeah, they, they find the stupidest people to do the to do the show. Probably every, every single time they phone home. I saw clips of um, on the internet of one bloke who hunted the hunters, and I couldn't find him, and he was under the nose all the time because he was following them. They had a woman on the last series who was ex-military and ex-police, and uh, I th- she did very well, and again taunted them, um, and that was quite fun because she lured them along to a Halloween. It was Halloween time, and they had one of these Halloween farm things where you go along for the scare experience. So she was there dressed in a mask right under their noses and actually grabbed them and all that sort of stuff and then just hit the road and run but what was nice is as she hit the road and run there was a very close escape because it was the whole the getaway car wasn't there and all that I mean a lot of it of course they dial it up for TV so what makes if the getaway car's not there for three seconds they expand that from four camera angles to make it look like a minute you know but um, it's entertainment just like these films the film and the book and it's all it's all part of the same um, story really isn't it Indeed, uh, and so Ben in the uh, in the book, Ben is released. He's got, he's got like a two day head start. Is it? Is it? Tw- he's got like a twelve hour or two day. Hours, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah twelve hour head start. So he takes. He he's given something like five thousand uh, pounds as running money, which he then goes to a friend who he gets some fake IDs from. I think he gets a disguise as well, and he's and he's off. Sorry, Phil. Can I just stop up, you a sec? Yeah. Can I, sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. Um, he's got a twelve hour. Head start. Now people have been watching the free V. They've been watching the free V, so they know who he is straight away. Has he really got a head head start? Because the moment he's spotted by the public, he's spotted and they're gonna be onto him straight away. So he's never really got a head start, has he? Well, has he got a head start from the hunters though? This is He has from the hunt from the hunters that never really appear. You've got that one that appears at the end, but really it's the public that are hunting him. And so he's never really got a head start, has he? I mean as soon as he leaves that um, that building, all it takes is one person to turn around and go, Oh, it's you off the off the freebie. Yeah, that, that could just follow him everywhere. It, it could have been a very short book, couldn't it? It yeah. could have been a man yeah. who doesn't get, get more than one footstep you know your tag you're it there you are you know that's it as you mentioned earlier Paul about the tension when he's when he makes it to the hotel initially uh, and he's looking out the window there's a bit where like the police are moving people on uh, get off the streets move along if you're homeless and like he spots someone who who isn't moved along and I think that's the first indication that there's a hunter there and thereabouts and then this is where he has an idea to burn the hotel down so he can escape, which I thought was a bit extreme, rather than just go out through the sewage system. But at that point of the book, that's where, I think that's where it took the turn of he's not being hunted by hunters anymore because they, they said that X amount of police officers have killed in the fire, that it's the police, it's a nationwide police manhunt rather than a TV game, which kind of, doesn't that take the enjoyment away from the people who are watching 
that it's not hunters looking for him, but it's actually the entire world police. No, they become part of the game then, don't they? So it's it's more exciting, really. It's not just about the hunters, it's about them as well. All, all of these stories, there's a sense of, of shifting the goalposts in there. They'll, they'll set the rules up and then, then they change the rules a little bit, you know, by making it... It's not just the hunters, it's everybody. Or, I mean, similarly, maybe in the film, they, they start off with the audience cheering on the... Uh, the, what, the stalkers, the gladiators, essentially. And then there's that turning point moment in the film where one of the old ladies, you know, Richard Dawson's interviewing, say, so who, which gladiator, which stalker's going to make the next kill then? And she goes, I think Ben Richards. And suddenly the audience turn with her and go, oh yeah. So, and that's when the, that's the turning point when the network realise, like, oh, this is no longer going our way, you know. So um, they'll always do that. You know, they'll, they'll explore a thing for five, ten minutes, have the hunters being the, being the core of it. And then expand it out, I suppose. But yeah, arguably, I, I'd be curious to see the Edgar Wright version, even when we get it, because I think probably he, he may be more likely to stick to that thing of actually having an identifiable uh, one, two, three hunters. Probably it's going to be that thing of one hunter that we really stick with and go, oh, that's the antagonist. And then another couple of deputies will get bumped off pretty early. But ultimately, in all these films, generally it ends up being about one goodie versus one baddie. And that's really what you end up with, I suppose very rare that i watch a film and think actually yeah that this this needs a remake and uh, the, even though it's honest schwarzenegger even though it's some by a lot of people classed as a classic i think this could do with a remake it was of its time in all fairness it was it was one of those films. i think even even at its time people would have watched that and gone oh <laughs> it's a bit cheesy even well, apparently so I, I, it's apparently arnie said because it was a second director or even not third who came on and did it paul michael glazer did the film who was starsky of starsky and hutch and he came on after a week or two because the original director was already over budget and by millions of dollars and a week behind schedule after only about a week. I don't know how you can be a week over your schedule um, <laughs> after a week, but it means you've literally done nothing. But either way, he had to go. I'll be back exactly. next week. <laughs> and he won't be back. But apparently Arnie, uh, in his autobiography, said that that was the turning point moment for him that go, actually, the new director just made it um, like a, a, a sort of entertaining TV show, whereas it should have been a proper film with a bit of depth and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, as you say, I think even at its time, it was maybe seen as like a lighter version of what it could have been. And and the King book was just very different, really. And uh, in fact, the King novel, I, I think has never been adapted yet, but my favourite short story of his was The Long Walk, which was, I think, another Richard Backerman book and uh, it's just a, a, a kind of a similar dystopian future thing and a similar game show thing where actually it's just about, I think it's a hundred young men who have to just start walking. And the last one who's still walking uh, wins the wealth and the riches and that sort of stuff. But the other 99, as they drop, or if you slow down, if you stop for more than 10 seconds or something, you get shot essentially. And, you know, so it's a, a similar concept. Sounds like speed. But yeah, it's it's it's. I think it's it's ripe for a an adaptation. I'm sure. And I think there is, I, I think probably the difference between the book and the film, other than everything, uh, there was didn't really seem to be much tension in the film. But in the book, there was like I felt a lot of tension. Like in that hotel bit, it's like that you, know, you sat there. It's like who's going to get me? Who's going to see me? And especially when he meets uh, the family as well, like you feel for them because you know they're going to get it. You know what I mean? You know that they're not going to grass him, but they're going to get grassed or they're going to get found out somehow. And it's going to be, and it's just that, that build up of tension. And as he's passed through the hands, like he, he meets the family, they look after him, they set him up with a friend. 
who will send him on. They agree to, he's going to send the videos to them and they'll send them from different postmarks because he figures out that's how they're catching up with him. Uh, the um, the TV company uh, uh, are making out he's a horrible, terrible person and he's killed all these people and they're distorting pictures of his wife to make her look horrible and evil as well. Try and like, turn as many people against him as, as they can and he ends up as a as a priest hiding out as a priest which actually worked really well for him and I don't know why he just didn't carry on doing that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oddly enough um, and I think that was like, like spent four or five days pretending to be a priest at this hotel while this subplot of the poisoned air came in which I didn't really think they needed a subplot but they managed no. it no, but, they they really. but Stephen King you know him in his subplots managed yeah. to put this uh, uh, poisoned air thing in there where where the rich people had nose gauzes uh, which stopped them from getting ill and so he spends a lot of time doing research about this and it's like okay okay steve <laughs> put put down the cocaine but no <laughs> let's move forward with this so apparently he wrote the entire book in about three days is what he said that's so, crazy um, isn't it he that just is crazy blurted it out and it, he, he said it later on that you know it's just a young kind of angry writer just blurting this stuff down onto the page really but um so I think some of those subplots and things that just come in had a bit of that. But I suppose one difference you get between the book and the film is that in the book, there's a little, I mean, there's certainly a lot more subtlety and subtext. You know, there couldn't be a lot less subtlety and subtext in the film. It's just not subtext, just text, just Arnie with catchphrases. But in the in the book, the subtle way that um, and the slow, gradual way that Ben Richards finds out about the government and how bad it is and the and its plots against people and things like that. In the film, that's kind of up front. I think even in, in the rolling text at the very start of the film, it basically says, this, you know, the year is 2017, the government is essentially evil, and you go, oh, right, oh, they're evil. Okay, thank you, you've told me. You've told me. It's not, it's, you know, show, don't tell. You know, forget show. We will tell you. These are the baddies. These are the goodies. That's the film version. Whereas the book... We sort of know throughout, but the, the scope of the of, of the uh, the government plot, I think, comes out a little bit as as Ben Richards discovers it as well. I think you're right there. Like it tells you straight away, but also shows you straight away with the whole "I'm not going to hurt innocent people," and then they just attack him, kill all the people, and then blame him. So you kind of got that double bam bam, and so you know where you stand with the film. But I think you probably need that with a bit of Arnie, don't you? You just need Arnie's the hero. He's going to save the day. This is as bad as it possibly can be. One thing I don't like, whether it's book or film, is when the hero is like badly injured, especially like halfway through. So after this car chase he has with the police, he ends up breaking his foot. And as soon as he's like, oh, he's broke his foot, it's like, well, he ain't running anymore, is he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hobbling man. Well, <laughs> well, thankfully, I've never broke my foot, but I could imagine it would be extremely painful and you would be hobbling rather than running and that would be your time up. But the broken foot doesn't seem to bother him at all. It was a broken ankle, which would be even worse, I think. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, broken ankle, which is, yeah, but then like it's just still business as usual. I don't know at, at this point, is this when he kind of figures out what he's going to do? Because um, after his contact gets killed or captured by the police and that boy finds him in the alleyway, he's like, where's the airport? And he's like, was that his plan all along? Or was that, did he just decide that off the cuff? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I think there's there's certainly a lot more sense that we don't quite know our, our, our protagonist in the same way, maybe in the book. And we don't know his plan. We don't quite know. He seems to start out with this plan of just getting on the run as long as possible, not even sort of aiming for the finish line almost, just aiming to last as long as possible 
to get as much money as possible for his family, but never really thinking he'll, you know, because it does seem impossible, the whole 30 days thing. Yeah, and especially when it seems that the, the entire world of police are after him. You're like, you'd never survive in a month, are you? You never. No, and not, I, in a way, the month thing, again, not to criticise Stephen King, I'm sure he knows what he's doing, but it, by making it a month and then also not seeing through the month, you know, we don't get to last, the book doesn't last a month. Um, no. It lasts a few days, really. Uh, until the big finale, which we may or may not get to, um, depending on how spoilerific you want to make it. But um, oh no, the, well the book's the book. If, if you haven't read it by now, Paul, then well, exactly, uh... <laughs> exactly too right. But the fact that you know the, the big, the big end, the big dramatic, tragic end for Ben Richards in the book uh, is what three days in something like that. So it's not even a sense. So in, in a way, maybe would it have been a better story if they'd said, look, all you need to do is last three days can you last three days on the run and then maybe that's a great attention of, of actually will will he or won't he but you know Stephen King knows what he's doing so I, I'm not one to you know good luck to him I think there's three stages uh, of his thought process throughout the book is uh, when he starts out he even says in the book uh, I don't think you've got anybody who can take me down I think I'll do it and um, and I think that's how he starts that's his thought process to start off with I think he thinks he can do this then as he goes on he kind of like um, he breaks his ankle. He realizes that this, this is all going to shit. I'm just going to keep going for as long as I can and make as much money as I can for my daughter and my wife. And then there's the third process where he's on the fucking he's on the plane. He's he's got some hanging out and he realizes he's been told his family's dead. And his his, his thought now is I've got fuck all to lose. I'm just going to take fucking everyone out. That's an interesting theory. I think if we skip if we skip a little bit, so. Um he does take a woman hostage and then he has the very smart thing to do getting the TV reporters involved so they can't necessarily kill him without killing the innocent woman in all this which then I think they start twisting that she's a part of it and she's she's been having an affair with him and this that the other to try and get around uh, which I think governments do not 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 governments kind of like will turn people you know they'll that you know, like newspapers will turn you against the police or against the fire brigade or against doctors going, oh, they're greedy. Okay. These people going on strike, they'll turn, they'll turn the mass public against them to fit their narrative. And it's when he's got, uh, when he's in the plane. I think it's, uh, it was a case of, um, it was a case of, well, you're not going to shoot me down over a residential area. And then this is where like the hunter bit comes in because you've got that pilot who is a hunter, and it's like, oh, the, the uh, other than the McBride because he's pretending he's got dynamite on him or C4 and so they can't attack and they're not sure if they should or shouldn't which I think was a bit of a, a silly bluff because sort of they could have shot him in the head uh, and then the C4 wouldn't have it wouldn't have blown up just shoot him in the head but there's the big standoff before he gets on the plane but then there's a hunter on the, it's like well, where, where have these hunters been where are they they just turn up at the very end he's not really you haven't really hunted him you've you, you knew where he was all along but this is but this is where then you get the offer in the film he gets the offer to be a stalker and this is where they give him the offer of look you're really good why don't you become a hunter as well or oh, by the way your wife and your wife and child are dead it's like uh it's not exactly the best way to to ingratiate him into the stalker into the stalker family, is it? I, yeah, for me, I also that wasn't a bit I particularly enjoyed in in the book. But, you know, the whole your wife and child are dead thing. Um, I mean, a it's a downer, but also by this point we've realised we shouldn't really believe anything the government actually tell him, and no, so and he, does, he he believes this, and the reader I think is intended to believe this as well, but without any 
proof or evidence. Like if it felt a bit empty. Like I wasn't quite sure if that's just a thing you say to try and get someone to turn themselves in and game over. So I didn't quite know whether to believe that or not, or if we should believe it or not. You know. Well, no, but I, I suppose I suppose the fact that that's why he was doing it. It's like you're doing this for your family, but now they're dead now, so you don't have to do it anymore. You can just stop what you're doing. I, I did wonder if it was uh, true or not. I was, I was thinking maybe that they're just telling him that his wife and kid's dead because it's some sort of plot. Well, he loses all hope then, doesn't he? Uh, but obviously yeah, and then, then everything goes tits up for everyone. Yeah, and then obviously the uh, the main hunter's killed by the other hunter in a, in a bit of bait and switch, double crossing. And to be honest, I didn't see the end coming. Oh, I did. I did. I, I knew he had to die. See, at the beginning, he even said, he said, um, you know, what if I went straight to the top and took you all out? And uh, I, from then I knew, yeah, that this is going to end with him taking out the whole free V company. Mm. It's a pretty good ending, though. I think it's, uh, uh, I was I was impressed with the ending. I thought that was very good. Better than Killian being shot down a, a, a water slide. Yeah, the TV, uh, sort of the film, I said TV because it feels like a TV show because it is a TV show. But the film version, I, I, I sort of enjoyed part of the Arnie versus Richard Dawson uh, confrontation, which we've been rooting for the whole film. But it, it yeah, the, the final ending, though, the, the big finale of just firing down a tube and hitting a, a billboard. I can see what they're trying to do, saying, you know, hey, we're going to fire him into his own promotional face. <laughs> That'll be ironic, and you think uh, it's, it's not. I wouldn't call it ironic as such. It's not. Yeah, it didn't quite. It could, there could be more of that. The um, the scene in the book where he gets shot and his guts are hanging out. It's for a for, it was like for a second. Richard Bachman went back to Stephen King. And it's that whole description of him moving through the plane. And he, it says how he, he trod on a piece of his intestines and he felt something pull. He's like, fucking hell. And it, it, it was so fucking grim. And it, a bit of his intestines got caught under somebody's chin. Like, fucking hell, Steve, calm down. Jesus. I had to stop the book for a bit and come back to me. I think I read, I read somewhere, I don't know about it, whether or not it's true, but the Richard Bachman books were intended to be a little bit grislier and a bit sort of kind of pulpy. And um, But then you can't get a lot grislier than Stephen King, can you really? You know, no. some of his stuff there. It's. Um, but I mean, either way, I... I, I, I I'm still. A, I was in, in Sainsbury's yesterday, looking at. And you've got the books there, and he's got another. He's got another two books out on the same. I don't know how he does it. He's, he loves he's, it, don't I? He's the prolific nature of his writing. No wonder he needed to create another name just to get another book out a year. <laughs> it's it's amazing, indeed. And then yeah. So um. So spoiler alert: if we haven't already spoiled it, and you haven't read the book, pause the podcast now, and then go and read the book, and then you can come and listen to the end. So in the end, he just gets in. He, Gets into the pilot seat and just goes all nine eleven, doesn't he? Yeah, it goes full nine eleven into uh, Stephen King's predicted a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite worrying. Is he have to start? Uh, or did back. he encourage a lot of things? <laughs> um, and then that's where it ends. He 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 blows up the whole uh, he blows up the whole network. That I mean, not to say that it won't ever continue, but uh, he certainly gets his revenge on the whole thirteenth floor, or if that was the floor, just blows up the uh, building with the plane, which I thought was a really good ending, actually probably one of the better endings in a book than that that I've read. I was surprised by the racism in it. Mm. There's a lot in Stephen King books though. I think he's mm. um and well, not not racism so to speak, but his commentary on mm. on that kind of thing. It, it was I mean like in the uh, Tommy Knockers it's the, it, it's the same. There's a lot of um you know that kind of stuff where he, like like he highlights it, he commentates on that kind of stuff, yeah. <laughs> 
especially in those early early books you know he, he was what in his 20s back then probably when he's writing this and um there's I, I, you know it's, it's arguable whether or not he's holding a mirror up to american culture and the world at its time uh which of course would be different now and um yeah as, again i'd be curious to see the the film version that we get because we are due you know whether it's gonna be edgar wright or someone else in the future there's I, I wouldn't be surprised yet if edgar you know hands it on to somebody else or whatever it becomes but at some point we will get i'm sure the running man adaptation that we we deserve and um you know for the, for today's world well, wouldn't it be more comedy if it was an edgar wright film though rather than maybe a straight up proper action oh certainly yeah i think he would he would infuse it with that um, but it does. I mean, you, that's the thing that I suppose, as you highlighted earlier, with the amount of different film that subgenre you get of on the run, being hunted kind of films, goes to show you, you you can give it that plot to any different filmmaker, and they'll have a slightly different version. You can get a gnarly version, you can get a sort of gory version, you can get a, maybe a lightly comic version. I think the important thing is you get the tension right, and arguably the film at times did not get the tension right but no you're yeah, right there was I, no tension at all in the film was there no it was, <laughs> was no I still have a soft spot for the film I did find it fun in a way yeah but I don't know if fun is what you really want from this story I don't know that actually that is the the best version of it would the uh, would the running joke be that Nick Frost is out running everyone well if it's the running man you need a running joke don't you so uh, yeah <laughs> indeed okay so uh, well, I think I think we've covered the plot of the book there and the only similarity to the film is that there's a character called Ben Richards and Killian so uh, this is where I ask uh, Paul did you prefer the book or the film that's actually the most difficult question I, I, I probably the book I think it's, I say having said this really difficult question the book but um, but I like them both and I think there are I'm looking online about this I think there are a lot of people who say that they, they do like them both for diff- very different reasons <clears throat> and they are very different things and you know whenever you I suppose whenever you adapt anything you take the original source material and that's only ever going to be the basis you know it's a completely different medium completely different art form uh, film visual medium and you know they really went for the visuals from the yellow and blue jumpsuits to the sort of forming the basis of gladiators and all these sorts of things uh, they just took it in a completely different area really they, you know they tonally changed it they geographically changed it there's they changed the characters the backstory in the film there's no family in ben richards's backstory He's, well, there's a brother. There's a, oh, there's there's a brother. A, there's a brother, but yeah, just brother. mentioned as a brother. Yeah. Just mentioned, yeah. And there's no the wife and ill child, uh, which works in a, in the novel, certainly, I think, to give him a sense of why he's doing it and pushing him forward. But in the film, they want to be able to have that final clinch between him and Maria Alonso. So, um, therefore, having him as a single guy on the run works better for the for that sort of, you know, the 80s kind of you know you've got the cheesy power ballad coming in that you know with the kisses just killed killian uh you know cheesy smooch at the end roll credits and play um a forgettable power ballad so um they really went for all that sort of stuff didn't they but it, it does feel like they really slotted it into that genre as a film so i would certainly say i think the book um i prefer because also the book has that hope within it of a uh, a, a different, different adaptation but I'd be curious to see when we get even when we get that ad- adaptation will we return to the 1987 version of The Running Man and I imagine certain people will I imagine Richie won't but I imagine <laughs> that it has its fans even though um, it's definitely massively flawed 
Richie, same question to you. I mean, the, the, I think if you ask a thousand people this question, 99% of the time, probably over that, 99.8% of the time, people are going to say the book because it is just far superior in every way. I may, I might have enjoyed the film more had I have grown up with it. It's a, it's one of those ages things. I enjoy The Goonies now because I, I grew up with it. However, if I'd never watched The Goonies and watched it now for the first time, I'd probably go, "Well, that was a shit film." And I think <laughs> it's one of it's one of those things. But because I've only just watched it, did not enjoy the film at all. It was far too cheesy, and the, yeah, it, it was just yeah, just too much. But the book, yeah, as soon as I got past those few, first few chapters, I, I, I was into it from say chapter two to well chapter minus 98 to chapter minus zero or whatever <laughs> but yeah the book definitely but i think i think this is see, this is a difficult one because the stories are completely different and i like both stories and there's lots that like i scratch my head on with the book like the hunters like the scope like it's just been basically a police chase and it could have been a bit neater maybe the film was a bit neater i.e you're in an arena and you've got to survive and that was just a bit neater and again i grew up watching the film so i loved the film and stuff but i probably prefer the story of the book than the story of the film but not necessarily prefer the book over the film if you know what i mean i prefer the the story of the book because it's completely different there's not just bits added or bits missed out like we normally encounter when we talk about other stuff there's an underlying theme that covers both of them but the way they um, approach the theme is completely different from the book to the film I mean when Phil, Phil told me there's no point watching the film because it's completely different I actually thought oh it's called The Running Man but it's a different film but it, it is actually very loosely based very loosely based on the, the book well there is this tale as well isn't there I, I, about the origins of the film because there was a a lawsuit um, about the film saying it was plagiarised from a French film uh, from 1983 called Le, P- Le Prix du Danger, The Prize of Danger, um, which was adapted from a 1958 short story called The Prize of Peril. So, and, and I think that the ruling was in favour of that. So although it's the film's adaptation of Stephen King slash Richard, Richard Backman's book, if the court said actually the film was plagiarised from this French film, which is based on a 1958 short story oh. uh, written decades before Stephen King wrote his, but I doubt he would have read it. I don't know. So, you know, th- but these stories have been out there, I think, for some decades, um, and it's just getting the best version of it, I suppose. Um, so our next question for Richie is soundtrack. Richie, have you got a soundtrack for the film? Similar to what I'd have had for uh, the film with the pill. What was the film with the pill? Limitless. The, um, the, the mind pill, Limitless. Very similar. For, for, for the book adaptation, I'd have had a, a similar soundtrack to that. It'd have been very theatrical, very very edgy, very um, fast-paced. I chose the Prodigy, didn't I, for that? Yeah, yeah, something, yeah, something like the Prodigy, a bit of drum and bass because everything's fast-paced. It's on the run, you're on the move constantly. Um, music that makes you feel a little bit anxious, maybe. Paul, could you think of uh, maybe a, a titular song soundtrack to accompany the film? Um, what well, one that isn't there already? You mean uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, well, one one that you think may have may suit the film. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know. In terms of songs, I don't actually know what would be... I think, yeah, you want that... Um, I'd like to hear a Hans Zimmer kind of soundtrack to it, something with a bit of... I was thinking not not, not the kind of 
the buoyant Hans Zimmer as such, but I remember this Hans Zimmer did Dunkirk, I think, and it's that very low, slow, dread kind of sense um, that just sort of says trouble's coming, even if it doesn't quite deliver on it straight away. And that sort of slow-burning tension, I think, rather than anything, as opposed to the... Uh, well, I think the soundtrack you get in the film is by John Parr and, and Harold Faltermeyer, those sort of two... Uh, you know, you hear Harold Faltermeyer on Top Gun with the sort of the big, massive guitars and um, John Parr, who I think did St. Elmo's Fire. So mm. it was Oh, yes, of, of a... course. Yes, yes, yes. I was surprised we didn't get any Mick Fleetwood. Yeah, I know. In fairness. Yeah, it would have been the perfect opportunity. What's that all about? <laughs> What's that all about? Mick Fleetwood, of course, best known for his award-winning uh, Brits hosting experience with Samantha oh, Fox. with Sam Fox. <laughs> what a career that guy's had. Yeah. Best known for the for the terrible Brit Awards and the Running Man, <laughs> and a band, rather, it, rather than all of his brilliant music. Yeah, exactly, yeah, Albatross <laughs> and you know the Chain, whatever you know. And um, this is a part where we talk about: is there anybody that you could change in the cast and add? Is there anyone that that would make the film better? Potentially, Paul. Well, all of them, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's going to say... Oh, actually, no, Richard Dawson, I do feel, as the game show host. Uh, whoever they get as the future game show host in the next adaptation, I think really needs to embody some of that and would be really good to do that. Oh, so, you, again, know, you know who'd be brilliant? Les Dennis. Les, Den- Les Denis, yes, oh, indeed. Oh, Les Dennis. Because uh, I think, especially after his um, episode of Episodes, where, where you kind of saw him in a bit of a different light, I think uh, him playing someone evil... I think that would be quite good. Yeah, if they could do the same thing, get a real game show host like they did, you know, the Family Feuds, Richard Dawson, they could get a Dermot O'Leary, they could get a, uh, you know, someone who actually does it properly Yeah, and just give them a little bit of a dark spin to it. It might be quite an interesting... Well, look, Davina McCall played herself in Dead Set, the zombie version of Big Brother. That's correct, that's correct. There is form in that area, yeah. And and do you think that if it if it stays with Edgar Wright, for instance, do you think it will be a Simon Pegg and Nick Frost marriage? I don't know. They might be in there as a cameo somewhere, as I don't know, Hunter Stalker people or something. But I, I, you know, they'll they'll have to do get as the protagonist as the lead. You need someone who is very un Arnie, I guess. Uh, to just really, I think also just to make a point, to, to make a point to those who've seen the original to go, oh no, we are going the other way. So they're not going to get a Chris Hemsworth or, um, you know, a Tom Hardy as such. I think they'll get someone who is, um, I don't know, a bit, well, I don't know quite if it's, I've not seen this film, but there's that film Nobody starring. Um, oh, yeah, Bob Odenkirk. Yeah, Bob Odenkirk, you know, and that kind of sense of finding a bit, someone who's at the end of their tether and at the end of, and, and not unnatural for this sort of fit. I think it is an interesting way to go. But then seeing them embody it and come through it and, um, you know, do that, do their thing. Richard? Um, it depends how you're going to do the film. If you're going to do the film how it was and you're going to go a bit comedic, like I said, then yeah, uh, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg would... Um, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, and Simon Pegg chase, chase him or something as the, um, as the, the, the hunter. Ooh. But um, if you're going to go more serious, and I didn't think of it until you just said it, but if you're going to go, like closer to the book then Tom Hardy would be brilliant because he's got that nonchalant don't give a fuck thing about him which would be you know and he, he can be quite uh, cynical and I think he'd be perfect for a book a proper book adaptation um, Maria 
is it Conchita yeah. Alonso? Yeah. I think she was perfect. I never discovered that she was beautiful. I was straight on the Google Maria and uh, Conchita Alonso nude straight on the hook to see if I could find anything. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Made my night that did. But yeah, no, that, that's how I'd go. Comedic Nick Frost, Simon Pegg, brilliant. More serious, I'd go with Tom Hardy and for the game show host. To, I don't know, just anybody uh, charismatic, really. Oh, I, I think I think I've just got the well. And if anyone's listening, I'll take my commission later. Uh, David Tennant as the lead. Okay. Yeah, just put because he can do everything. He can do funny. He can do serious. He can do scary. I mean, he's making a career of being a bad guy at the moment, isn't he? So David Tennant Ten- feels a bit like a wild card for me. You could pretty much say that on any episode of this that we do. I'll use David Tennant. He's the go-to person, and you could say it on every single episode. <laughs> he can do fucking anything. They need someone who can run and 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 looks good running even if it's someone who doesn't look like a natural runner do you know what i mean like, who might need to get someone in who mo farah uh, yeah. <laughs> brilliant liz McColgan, get her you in. heard it here first yeah oh gosh um I think that's it. Is that it, Richie? Is that all of our bits? Maybe just uh, if you could change anything in the book and the film, what would you change? Um, well, I think I mentioned it earlier. I'd, I'd like to see it go go wider. Um, I think we, we're tying it back to the Hunted Channel 4 thing. They did an American version of Hunted, the American Hunted, um, a couple of years ago. And because America is so vast, you know, the, the UK version of Hunted, they can travel anywhere in Great Britain. The American version, I think they had to have one corner of one state and they showed at the very start, like, in, in this bit of Georgia, this is their parameter. And just to keep it more manageable, but um, it which felt a little bit kind of false, because the truth is, if you're on the run, you're on the run, you know. So um, I would like to see a version of this which is properly on the run and maybe spans the country, you know, and pro- probably re- keep it to one country. If you go beyond that, it's a bit much. But I'd like to see just a few different locations. Let's see a cityscape, you know, an outback desert kind of thing. Um, little villages. Oh, that's that sort of. I, th- I think if you did that and you got people on the run in the whole of America, I don't think you're going to find many losers. Do you think? I think you're going to get a lot more winners. <laughs> that's true. I think. Um, I, I think what they could have possibly done in the book was have checkpoints. So you've got, for instance, 24 hours to get to checkpoint A, and once you're there, then you get like a two-hour head start to get to checkpoint B, checkpoint C, that kind of thing. So you know, there's you. You're hunted up until that point, but once you're in, say, I don't know, a 500-yard parameter, then you're safe. So you've got a safe zone, and then you can move on to the next checkpoint. So at least you've got something to follow and something to aim for, where in the book it was kind of a bit aimless, so to speak. Yeah. Well, no, also, if you do that, you get those moments of a breather as well, and you yeah. get the action scenes and the more passive, more reflective scenes where you can then do the whole government conspiracy thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it, yeah, it just gives it a bit more structure, maybe, yeah. Well, uh, well you see, because they did that very well in the Highlander TV series, where you couldn't, where you couldn't fight on holy ground. So, you know, like if you're being chased by someone who's trying to chop your head off, you just run to the church and you've got that breather, so to speak. So you've got that little bit. I think in in the film, the one bit that I never understood was going, oh, we've had three winners of this 
but like those winners obviously never won but those win like those winners never killed a stalker either so how did they actually did they just dodge him and get to the end of the the zone and then walk into the next zone and you know that was kind of never explored or explained it was just these three people have won so but not really well yeah obviously not really but like how did you know how did they blag that to start you know like that could have been not explored but it yeah. was never really explained either the um the pit stop thing instead of the uh, the amazing race I mentioned earlier, which I think you can find on YouTube. And I think I've seen clips of that. Yeah, I've seen clips. That's before. the American one, and then there's a British one. They've only had two series of it, and then COVID put an end to it. But Race Across the World was the BBC Two sort of version, which again had that pit stop thing, and that was quite good because you had couples that have to go literally across, you know, um, from Paris to. I was going to say Kabul, probably not Kabul, but, um, but they had to go from like <laughs> London to Singapore, for example, and they had pits. They had like five pit stops, and it just gave, gave you a sense each episode of like, okay, there to there, and whoever's there first, and you you get a, the head start on the next thing as to how far ahead you were from the previous lot. So it does mean that there is a genuine sense of a race, but also with moments of and relax, you know. So yeah. okay, well before before we uh, round the podcast up, Paul, what are you doing next? Where are you next? And where can people buy your stuff? Uh, yeah, so I'm on the on tour doing the first broadcast, the Battle for the BB-1922, uh, until the end of the year. I've got my novel, which will hopefully be out around then, which is also on the early days of the BBC, called Auntie and Uncles. I'm still writing it for now, though. Um, my podcast is called The British Broadcasting Century, and I'm on the road doing gigs and things. So just find me on social media and things. Paul Carenza, K-E-R-E-N-S-A. Thank you. Excellent stuff. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, Paul. Uh, nice to speak to you again. Thanks for having me. And uh, maybe if your next novel is somehow adapted, somehow yes. we can have you back on. We could talk about why you change things. Well, absolutely. In fact, you know what? I pitched it. <laughs> I pitched it as a TV drama and it was turned down last year. So I thought, you know what? I'll write it as a novel. And that way I'll slap it on the, the book on a desk of, uh, of some TV executive and say, there, now adapt that. <laughs> so maybe uh, that's the way to do it. Exactly. Brilliant. Before you go, do you have any suggestions for future books that we could cover? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, future books. Um, I don't know. Well, I love it. I'm old school. I like an Agatha Christie. I was a fan of those. Um, the, the other one I nearly suggested for this, which was my favourite book growing up, was And Then There Were None. And there are about yeah, about four or five different, um, different adaptations of that, which are all quite different. Uh, so they're quite fun. And... Um, yeah, I'll have to think. What else, really? I mean, those are the sort of uh, the ones I particularly grew up with. Because uh, then, uh, my, my wife loves the things like the, the books that are quickly adapted into the screen, big screen stuff. So, like um, the Crawdads one, when when the Crawdads sing, whatever it is, and um, Big Little Lies, and these sort of uh, airport thrillers, or um, you know, poolside reads that then appear on Netflix or Apple TV. Ooh, very, very how, about, how about Fifty Shades? Should we do that, Paul, when you come back? Unfortunately, to do that, I'd have to read the book or watch the film, and I have no plan on doing either. But uh, yeah, uh, Actually, uh, that's a good point. Because um, uh, in our conversation pre-podcast, you'd mentioned uh, Agatha Christie, then the Manon. Um, I think maybe we'll have you back on next year. Uh, and, uh, and I think you were, you were saying that we could all watch a different version uh, of the because there are a lot of different versions and a lot of different adaptations. I think there was one on the BBC uh, yep. a few years ago yep. as well. And there's um, there's a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger film which is loosely based 
on that as well. So oh, there is, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. there's lots of different there's lots of different things to do. So maybe mm. we can have you back in the new year and yeah. we can Love do a bit that. Of Agatha Christie. And also my favourite um, adaptation, really, uh, favourite book, really, I suppose, is a, is a Christmas Carol. You know, which is has been mm. adapted. I think more times than anything else, you know. Uh, so, which, uh, which my favourite adaptation is Scrooged. Oh yes, I, I love I, that. I, for me, it won't get better than the Muppets, you know. But uh, <laughs> either way, Richie can watch that version. Awesome. So yeah, we're at the end of the show. I just want to say thank you, Paul, for joining yeah, thank us. You very it's much been for an absolute you. pleasure. Enjoyed. And uh, hopefully, we'll have you back in the future. Phil, thank you. No problem. Uh, if you want to find uh, all the stuff that we've done in the past, or if you want to find us, you can find us on Twitter, Adapted to Screen. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and all those places, Adapted to Screen Podcast. Please give us a rate and a review on Good Pods, five star Good Pods, and on Podchase or YouTube or wherever. Um, Spotify, just yeah, it helps us get the podcast out there. We'd much appreciate that. You can, yeah, so just do, do those things. And um, until next time, this has been the Adapted to Screen podcast, and you've been listening to us discuss The Running Man, the book versus the film. Cheerio. In the year 2017, an innocent man accused of a crime has a choice. Hard time or prime time. Sensational. Perfect contestant. I want him. He must pay or play the running man. On your mark! I'll be back. Go! The highest rated TV show in history. I guess they want us to stay. It's a game between life and death. Can you lift? Arnold Schwarzenegger is... The Running Man. He's playing for a prize. The prize is his life. How about the life? The Running Man.